Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for October 11, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Beware, auditing of inpatient short stays has begun, according to Rack Monitor. Dr. John Zellum will provide context on this development while reporting on the use of the current span code 72. The Biden administration is poised to add an additional $1 billion on top of an initial $2 billion to produce new at-home rapid COVID-19 tests. Monitor Monday's legislative analyst Matthew Albright has details. And we'll hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the number of people in hospitals with COVID-19 has fallen. Nonetheless, the death toll today is more than 713,000. Meanwhile, care rationing continues in hard-hit Idaho. One hospital says the military response has been a big help. Nonetheless, the number of infected patients continues to climb, stretching resources close to the breaking point. And finally, Kaiser Health News reports that Anthem Blue Cross, the country's second biggest health insurance company, is behind on billions, billions of dollars in payments owed to hospitals and doctors because of what they claim are onerous new reimbursement rules, computer problems, and mishandled claims that according to hospitals in multiple states. Kaiser quotes Molly Smith of the American Hospital Association as saying that Anthem, like other big insurers, is using COVID-19 as a cover to institute egregious, he says, egregious policies that harm patients and pinch hospitals financially. We have a lot of news reported. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning all, and good morning, Julie C. First of all, happy Case Management Week to all of our Case Management listeners. Thank you for all you do. You know, Case Management Week goes from October 10th to the 16th. Now, some of you may have missed it, but Clinical Documentation Week was last month, running from September 13th through 17th. Now, I'm always happy to celebrate the work of those wonderful people, but why does Case Management Week run from Sunday to Saturday, while CDI Week ran from Monday through Friday? It seems to me those CDI people should be forced to come to the hospital on Saturday and Sunday, like their case management colleagues, to get some cold pizza and perhaps review a few charts while they're already in the hospital. It would only be fair. In the news, last week, Blue Cross of Michigan released a notice that starting in 2022, they will not approve inpatient admission for a list of 22 diagnoses until at least 48 hours of observation has passed unless the patient is receiving care in the ICU. While some of the diagnoses make sense, like syncope and nausea and vomiting, the list includes all patients with heart failure, COPD, pneumonia, diabetic ketoacidosis, and amazingly, meningitis. They also note that intercall criteria will not be used until after 48 hours has passed. So if your acute exacerbation of systolic heart failure patient also has acute kidney injury, hyponatremia, and metabolic encephalopathy, um, did I do good, Dr. Reamer? Um, And you know that they're gonna need at least four days and the light turns green on intercall, Unless you admit them to the ICU, they are observation. 
Now remember, this is an issue of payment and not medical care. If that 48-hour observation stay pays you more than you'd get if you admitted them as an inpatient, go with it, right? The problem is though, most of us have no idea how the insurer actually pays our facility. That's all in the hands of your finance staff. Now also note that Blue Cross implies that this, this policy also applies to all of their plans, but I'm not too sure about Medicaid. Now why is that? Well, Dr. Eddie Hugh, the system physician advisor at UNC Health, made me aware of a crucial section of the Code of Federal Regulations, 42 CFR 440.2. And that section describes the federal financial participation in Medicaid programs, and it clearly defines an inpatient as a patient who's been hospitalized over 24 hours or is expected to need 24 hours. It's not 48 hours. It's not 24 to 48 hours. There's no mention of criteria. And this is a regulation, not a manual or an FAQ. To me, that means that every single Medicaid plan in the country, including managed Medicaid plans, must abide by this definition of inpatient if they want federal money. Now, all of you may want to look at your Medicaid plan rules and remind them that they violate federal regulations at their own risk. That was 42 CFR 440.2. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. In case you didn't know, instead of orange, Medicare Advantage is the new black. Since Medicare Advantage plans are paid more for sicker patients, there are huge incentives to fabricate comorbidities that may or may not exist. Medicare Advantage will be the next most audited arena. Home health, behavioral health, the two midnight rule, they've held the gold medal for the highest number of audits, but soon Medicare Advantage will prevail. As an example, last week, a New York health insurance plan for seniors, along with a medical analytics company the insurer is affiliated with, was accused by the Justice Department of committing health care fraud to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. The dollar amounts are exceedingly high, which also attracts auditors, especially the auditors who are paid on contingency fee, which is almost all of them. CMS pays Medicare Advantage plans using a complex formula called a risk score, which is intended to render higher rates for sicker patients and less for those in good health. The data mining company combed electronic medical records to identify misdiagnoses, pocketing, allegedly, up to 20% of new revenue it generated for the health plan but the Department of Justice alleges that the company's reviews triggered tens of millions of dollars in overcharges when those missing diagnoses were filled in with exaggerations of how sick patients were or with charges for medical conditions the patients did not have. Medicare Advantage plans have grown to now cover more than 40% of all Medicare beneficiaries, so too fraud and abuse allegations have gone to point fingers at Medicare Advantage. A 2020 OIG report 
found that Medicare Advantage paid $2.6 billion a year for diagnoses unrelated to any clinical services. Diagnoses fraud is the main issue that auditors are focusing on. Juxtapose the other alphabet soup auditors, the MACs, the SMERCs, the UPICs, the ZPICs, the MCOs, TTEs, and RACs. They concentrate on documentation nitpicking. I had a client accused of fraud, waste, and abuse for using purple ink. Other examples include purported failing of times in or out when the CPT code definition includes the amount of time. They are extremely different. Audits will be ramping up, especially since HHS has reduced the Medicare appeals backlog at the administrative judge level by 79%, which puts the department on track to clear the backlog by the end of 2020, I'm sorry, 2022 fiscal year. As of June 30th, 2021, the end of the third quarter of fiscal year 2021, HHS had 86,063 pending appeals remaining at Omaha, according to the latest status report. The department started the year with 426,594 appeals. This is progress, folks. Progress. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink, Sam David Glazer, and Dr. John Zellum, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, October the 11th. It's Indigenous Peoples Day, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday Standby. Automate denial workflows and simplify audit processes from a single platform with Refine from Vine Medical. Designed specifically for healthcare, the cloud-based Refine platform delivers denials management in a seamless application. The Refine audit solution for government audits enables you to receive and respond to Medicare documentation requests electronically. Eliminate lost audit notifications and ADRs sent by mail, saving time and money. Improve timely filing of audit responses. Improve payment response times for audited claims. Manage audits through a single cloud-based solution. Consolidate software tools, eliminating the need for separate data and screen scraping utilities. And enhance the security of audit response data with electronic delivery. Learn more about the Refine platform at bindmedical.com and save the date for their upcoming webinar with Rack Monitor on November 9th. Here now with the Modern Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. And David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So first, I want to preview my topic for next week, uh, which is going to be following up on Dr. John Zellum's segment, because in the last six days, I've learned of five clients with the same basic UPIC short-stay audit. The request is very burdensome, and as Ron and I have mentioned lately, it seems like the two-midnight rule is being ignored. So we'll talk about that next week. Right now, I want to discuss angry patients, a problem that's experiencing an acute exacerbation during the pandemic, though there's nothing cute about it whatsoever. I've had more conversations in the last few months than in the prior 29 years of my career about patients who are belligerent, yelling, screaming, and threatening staff. 
Now, medical professionals are already overworked. Now we have to add in scared. So what do you do? I think it's helpful to start by focusing on your legal duties. There are two obligations that can potentially conflict. You've certainly got a duty to your staff to make sure that they are safe. That responsibility really extends to everyone in the building. You've also got a duty to your patients, including the obnoxious ones. In particular, you need to be sure that their poor behavior is not the result of a health issue. And that's where my first tip for dealing with any inappropriately behaving patients comes in. You want to confirm that the issue isn't medical. If you've got a policy that discusses aggressive patients, the first bullet point should be evaluate the patient. If the patient is having a mental health crisis or is delusional or hypoglycemic or anything like that, it's important to address the medical condition because that may solve the behavior issue. But the unfortunate reality right now is that many of these aggressively behaving patients are simply angry. Heck, we can even see it occasionally in comments from listeners where some folks uh, get very upset if they feel like you're being too far to the left or too far to the right when you're just reporting on basic facts. So can you terminate the relationship of a patient for behaving badly? Can you discharge them from the hospital? The answer will depend largely on the setting and the patient's overall condition. In an emergency room, EMTALA is gonna make it nearly impossible for you to send a patient away for being difficult or even violent. Now, if we're talking about the patient's friend or partner who's acting up, you absolutely can bar them, but the patient is going to be entitled to their medical screening, at least up to the point where you need to get law enforcement involved, and frankly, most likely past that point. You, need, you may need to have a police officer in the room, but you're still gonna need to evaluate the patient. Similarly, if a patient has been admitted as an inpatient and they're still unstable, discharge has the potential to be problematic. The answer isn't as clear as it is in the emergency department, but sending an unstable patient home is an invitation for trouble. Now, by contrast, in a clinic setting, it's gonna be much, much easier to discharge a patient. Most malpractice insurers recommend giving the patients 30 days notice to find other care before a termination takes effect. But it's not like this is some etched in stone law, it's a risk management recommendation. It's entirely appropriate to consider all of the risks, including the risk to your staff. If the, if the patient's behavior is bad enough, it may be worth taking the risk that they're gonna to complain to a medical board or bring a malpractice action. Now, I have more thoughts, but I don't have time to cover them all in this segment. Fortunately, two of my colleagues are doing a free webinar on this topic on Wednesday. And if you're busy then, it'll be on demand also for free. Drop me a line if you're interested in the registration link. Chuck, sometimes patients channel the one-hit wonder, rusted root. They're saying, in essence, send me on my way. When they do, you should listen. Send me on my way. Send me on my way. Mm -hmm. So Chuck, it's time for you to send me on my way back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday legislative update. 
The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, on the last day of September, HHS, the Department of Labor, and the IRS released the second of two interim final rules that implement the No Surprises Act. Now, listeners may remember that the No Surprises Act actually has two categories of requirements. The first category is related to the name of the act, No Surprises, and is aimed at a relatively small group of claims, out-of-network emergency claims, out-of-network services provided in in in-network facilities, and out-of-network air ambulance claims. The act prohibits balanced billing in these out-of-network circumstances and outlines how out-of-network providers and facilities should be reimbursed for these claims. The second category of requirements in the No Surprises Act can generally be summed up as transparency in pricing requirements. For example, the No Surprises Act requires every plan to have a price transparency tool and to keep their provider directories accurate. This latest interim final rule addresses both these requirements categories, and the rule has broadly been perceived as a negative for hospitals and providers at large. In terms of the surprise balance billing requirements, this latest rule allows plans to reimburse out-of-network providers as they see fit, then gives providers a number of opportunities to negotiate and bring plans to arbitration if providers disagree with that reimbursement. However, the latest regulation significantly restricts the arbitrator in deciding what an appropriate reimbursement might be for these out-of-network claims. The rule says that arbitrators must assume that the plan's median in-network rate is the appropriate reimbursement. If a provider wants to be paid more, then the provider must prove that other factors related to the claim itself justify a higher payment. For the American Medical Association and many other provider associations, this policy approach is too close to establishing a government-mandated rate for these out-of-network claims. Instead, they would like the government to allow the arbitrator to consider all factors when deciding on an appropriate market-based reimbursement, with a plan's median in-network rate used as just one of those factors. Along with provider pushback, this second No Surprises Act regulation has also been criticized by both sides of the aisle in Congress. Sources in Washington say that there is a chance that the Biden administration may change course on this arbitration policy through a final, final rule. But for now, the requirements remain for the January 2022 compliance date. In terms of transparency requirements, the latest No Surprises Act regulation puts additional burdens on all providers in the form of good faith estimate requirements. In a little notice provision, the rule requires that all providers, including apparently for dental, vision, and mental health, give uninsured patients a pre-service estimate of the cost of the healthcare services every time a visit, procedure, or item is scheduled. Again, this is a requirement for all providers of healthcare services in and out of network from hospitals to family physicians. Every time healthcare is scheduled with an uninsured patient, the provider must provide a good faith estimate within one to three days of all possible charges associated with that appointment. Of course, this is a huge lift for providers before January 1st. If a healthcare visit or procedure is any more complex than a checkup, it is very difficult to estimate all the possible items and services that may be associated with that visit or procedure. 
and multiple physicians may have to contribute to create a single good faith estimate. Chuck, in terms of No Surprises Act regulations, this second rule is the last rule we expect this year, but as we've heard, it's a doozy. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, as Alan Fink said, Alan also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Well, good morning, Chuck, and happy Monday, all. Open enrollment starts on October 15th, and that can only mean one thing. Every Medicare Advantage plan is sharing their enhancements to entice prospective beneficiaries. Amid the pandemic, these plans grew, with benefits equally expanding. Yet just when we thought we'd seen it all, wait. There's more. Aetna, Centene, Cigna, Humana, and United Health Group announced big doings last week that are worthy of sharing. Medicare Advantage enrollment has been steadily rising. It is projected to add over 3 million beneficiaries, rising to 29.5 million people in 2022. A big part of this growth is United Healthcare that will solidify its top position in the Medicare Advantage product space, adding close to over 3 million members. 94% of Medicare-eligible consumers in the U.S. In 2022, Centene is also increasing their Medicare Advantage foot product footprint by 26%. Some might recall that in September, Centene announced consolidation of its current Medicare brands to form WellCare. Well, the end result is over 48 million beneficiaries in 36 states who will have access to expanding Medicare Advantage programming. Cigna is keeping their party going, growing plans by 30%, especially across Connecticut, Oregon, and Washington State. The insurer currently offers plans in 477 counties in 26 states, plus the District of Columbia. Umana grew their Medicare Advantage population by close to 5 million people up 12% from last year. They'll add over 70 new health plans with pres prescription drug and other special needs plans, including access to telehealth for primary care, urgent care, and outpatient behavioral health needs with no copay. In addition, those who have contracted coronavirus can receive testing, treatment, vaccinations, and 28 meal deliveries, also with no copay. United Healthcare will institute a U-card to be leveraged for the over-the-counter benefit and the healthy food benefit cards. Members can use the card to redeem rewards at retail locations and online. Now, amid all this growth, premiums are expected to drop slightly, slightly, excuse me, maybe slightly, but don't be fooled by that metric. While the average premium for Medicare Advantage plans will decrease from $21.22 to $19 per month, Part D coverage is slated to rise from $31.47 to $33 per month. The Part D rise will wipe out any anticipated profits from the premium decreases. Oh, well. Yet amid the growth of these plans, there is increased scrutiny and meeting of the Medicare medical loss ratio. Plans must still spend a minimum of 85% of premium dollars on medical expenses, and many struggle with attaining that goal. Three United Healthcare plans and one Anthem plan missed that mark for three years now and are subject to major sanctions per the requirements. More sanctions expected to follow. Our Monitor Monday survey asks, 
Has your organization seen a rise in patients with Medicare Advantage plans? Yes or no, does not apply or do not know. Well, back to you, Chuck, and we'll check the answers in a bit. Thanks very much. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Samnick. And coming up, as Alan said, the surprising results of today's Modern Monday Listener Survey. But first, this message. These days, maintaining strict regulatory compliance is a big challenge. A variety of factors, from a deluge of regulatory news to the ongoing impact of COVID-19, make it feel like you're navigating turbulent waters. Now more than ever, you need to be sure everyone on your team, including those working remotely, is following the same guidance and moving in the same direction. A subscription to Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast is your port in the storm. For a single money-saving fee, your whole team can access the full library of exclusive Rack Monitor educational webcasts featuring nationally acclaimed compliance and audit experts. Here's good news. You can get a complimentary three-day trial by visiting the portal page at Rack University. Now it's the time for the results of today's Modern Monday Listener Survey. Once again, here's Alan. Thank you, Chuck. And uh, you guys are quick. Has your organization seen a rise in patients with Medicare Advantage plans? Well, the browsing majority said yes. Close to 64% said yes. And 0.8%, 0.6%, only one user said no. Only 7% said does not apply. And a bare minimum of 20 8% said do not know. Well, clearly, Medicare Advantage plans will continue to shift the playing field and landscape for organizations. More on this exciting story as we move forward through the year. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. Auditing of inpatient short stays is underway, that according to Rack Monitor. But what does it mean for context and comment? We asked Dr. John Zellum to describe the use of occurrence span code 74. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Explain how and when and why we should be using occurrence span code 72. Thanks, Chuck, and good morning to everybody. As it's been stated, Levanta has started sending out documentation requests for these short stay inpatient audits. Uh, they will be selecting 30 inpatient admissions of Medicare beneficiaries whose length of stay was either zero or one day within the prior three months from targeted hospitals. This actually does fall in line with the two categories associated with the two midnight rule. Uh, the presumption but focuses on the benchmark, which I'll uh, define in just a second. Um, one-day stays and zero-day stays actually, though, can be a reflection of a poor UR process or the timing of the reviews, but that's not the case every single time. So just to quickly review, under the two midnight presumption, inpatient claims with lengths of stay greater than two midnights after formal admission following the order will be, and I love the way this is phrased, presumed generally appropriate for Part A payment, whatever those three words actually mean. But the benchmark, which is where the focus is, is Essentially, the decision to admit the beneficiary should be based on the cumulative time spent at the hospital, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning with the initial outpatient service. In other words, if the physician makes the decision to admit after the beneficiary arrived at the hospital and began receiving services, 
he or she should consider the time already spent receiving those services and estimating the beneficiary's total expected length of stay. So in order to ensure accurate tracking of the two midnight requirement for an inpatient level of care, CMS allows hospitals to use the occurrence span code 72 to track outpatient care prior to inpatient admission. The, the use of occurrence span code 72 is commonly used to show that the patient has actually passed two necessary midnights in the hospital, but less than two as an inpatient. We also know that the presence of this code is not going to exempt uh, uh, facilities from admission, from audit, and that doesn't mean that audit in these cases will result in an automatic denial. It is truly dependent upon appropriate documentation, which I'll discuss a little bit at the end. So previously, the inpatient claim only allowed CMS to track inpatient time after a patient was formally admitted as an inpatient, but using the current SPAN code 72 allows providers and review contractors to identify the total number of midnights on the face of the claim, inpatient and observation, including time receiving outpatient care in the hospital that can be reported includes observation services, treatment in the ED, and even surgical procedures. Time spent at a transferring facility counts towards the two midnight rule and should also be reported with the current span code 72. Remember though that the PEPR is not a good indicator of this because they have excluded any, uh, uh, any patients who have claims that include a current span code 72. The, the other thing to keep in mind is that there's transmittal 1334, which permits the physician and the medical reviewer to consider all time a beneficiary has spent in the hospital receiving outpatient services as already defined. I would just like to take the last minute uh, offering some hints on documentation because documentation is going to be the key in order to prevent these as denials. One of the things that I've always taught is there are two areas that need to be looked at, the admission history and physical, and also the time that the order for inpatient is actually written. Four, com four things to keep in mind in the history and physical are suspects, concerns, predictable risk, and intent for treatment. What does the physician suspect is going on? Do they have high or low levels of concerns for predictable events, bad events? What are those predictable risks, and what is the intent for treatment? And lastly, at the time that the order is written, and having learned this from ALJ hearings in the past, many times when the order for inpatient is written, there is nothing in the documentation. There needs to be something there to explain why the inpatient order is written. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Zellum. That was Dr. John Zellum reporting our lead story this morning, the use of a current span code 72. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fick-Sandrick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. John Zellum, who recorded our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.